Hi, welcome to the latest episode of Mistress Mia's Dungeon. I'm your hostess, Mistress Mia, and you know my obnoxious, weird little sidekick, <laughs> oh, Master not, John. Not, at least I'm not a troll. <laughs> I'm weird and obnoxious. But. So tonight we have the pleasure of introducing Mr. Oberon Sell. I hope I said that completely correct. <laughs> it's a beautiful name, by the way. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight. And um, we just want to start off with, tell us about yourself. Well, um, gosh, I have to say, I'm, um, I'm, I'm a wizard. I'm an artist. I'm an author. I've written a lot of books. I've um, uh, founded a church, the Church of All Worlds, back in oh, the early 60s. It was the first uh, avowed pagan church ever. I was the first person to claim the word pagan as a religious identification and thereby started an entire movement that is now millions of people strong. And um, relevant to this particular interview, and um, uh, I've always been Polly myself, uh, and so is my beloved life mate, Morning Glory. And we met together in 1973, and, um, it, and there's an amusing story about our meeting. It was at a convention and in Minneapolis, the third annual Gnostic Aquarian Convention, and I was a featured speaker, keynote speaker, on the subject of Gaia. And I had just um, written some very important papers on the living earth. And I was signed up to do a number of walk of talks. And she hitchhiked all the way across from Oregon to, Mich to Minneapolis to attend the festival and signed up for all of my classes and workshops based on the titles. But it took a while for us to actually meet. I mean, I saw her coming in the door and went, wow, because she looked stunningly beautiful. And, um, and she saw me, and, and there was an immediate attraction, but we both had other things to do. She had to sign in, and I had an interview with Playboy, and we just didn't connect until uh, a little later on. And, and we finally met and, and said, okay, well, um, great, we've got a lot to talk about, I'm sure, um, but I have, a, I have a workshop I have to go to. And she said, well, I do too, so let's walk together. And we, we went down, and turned out we were both going to the same place. And she went in, in and got a uh, seat in the front row. And I went up behind the lectern and set myself down. And that's when she realized I was, in fact, the person she had signed up to hear talk. And at the end of the talk, she was blown away, as was everybody else, by the rather profound revelation of the concept of the living earth. And she jumped up from her seat and said to me, we have to talk. And I looked at her and I said, yes, we do. And I grabbed her hand and we went right out of the hall, leaving everybody else just standing there with their jaws open. <laughs> um, and we went upstairs where we found a nice little secluded place behind a potted palm. And we turned to look at each other and begin to talk about stuff. And suddenly everything else just vanished. There was nothing for either of us but looking into each other's eyes. And it was like that scene in the dark crystal where the gelflings meet and share everything. And, and she said, well, um, I can see this is really huge, but I really need to warn you about something. Um, I'm not really monogamous, you know? I, I mean, if that's what you really want, I would, I, I'd, I'd give it a try, but I can tell you I probably wouldn't be very good at it. And then she described, as she described the story, she said, and he looked like at me like he'd seen the Holy Grail, because that was, that was huge. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way we began our life and our relationship. And we had... Um, <laughs> 
and we realized we had always been basically polyamorous all our life and and eventually and we just lived that way it really wasn't any big deal we just lived that way we the church of all worlds was inspired by a science fiction novel called stranger in a strange land where polyamory is kind of the basic theme and there's some really good dialogues and discussions on the subject and they're they're, they're just excellent really and that we always just took that for granted and so did most of the people who were attracted to us kind of either felt themselves that way or they just accepted it that is, as some people are just like we had people who were gay didn't matter really it was that's how they were and um years and years later we had uh, uh formed a triad marriage with a, a wonderful woman named diane and we're doing all kinds of cool things including publishing a magazine called green egg and one day a morning where i made some comment about some other couple that was trying to do an open marriage not very successfully and she made a comment about, well, they're just not following the rules. And Diane said, well, you're always talking about these rules. Why don't you write an article about it? So we'll publish it in Green Eggs. So she said, well, okay. So she wrote an article called Bouquet of Lovers, which appeared in the Beltane. That's, that's May Day issue of Green Egg magazine in 1990. And in the process of trying to develop the article and talk about it, she needed language which didn't exist. There was simply no word that involved having multiple lovers. You know, um, there, were, there were words involving multiple marriage, like polygamy and stuff. But all the, all the words involved the, the word gammy, which means marriage, not just being lovers. So we played around with several ideas and bounced them back and forth. And, and finally, after, after several efforts, we settled on, on uh, polyamory and polyamorous as a description. And it just seemed like absolutely the perfect word. I mean, the alternative might have been um, we 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 were we knew a bit of Latin and a bit of Greek from our interests in in science, and so we always try try to draw from those. But the words that would have been if it had been Greek, it would have been um, a polyphilia, which sounds like mm -hmm. a disease or or something you really don't want. Oh, he's a polyphiliac. Get into that one. So the Greek didn't work, and Latin would have been multiamory, which just sounds awkward as latin often does so we tried to combine them and the combination of the latin and the greek absolutely made it perfect you know polyamory and it just caught on and that was in the article and it just caught on and spread and soon everybody was using it and now it's become a huge movement with millions of people uh, claiming polyamory as their preferred lifestyle and i just think that is very cool for a number of years we were deeply involved in the early movement and of course we had Half of our 40 years we had together was in group marriages until she died of cancer um, eight years ago. But uh, right up, right up, right now, even right currently, we've always had multiple lovers and, and group marriages. And it was wonderful and, and very successful. And people would say to us, well, how do you do that? That must be really difficult. And we would say, no, that's just the thing that makes everything else easy, you know. And I'll let you go on from there and, and ask questions, but that's kind of a little background. Oh, we have so many questions. Right. <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you. So, yeah, we've talked about polyamory a lot on the podcast. We've talked about different perspectives from both sides. Um, but you said polyamory and this group marriage really made things easier. Can you give us some examples of how it makes things easier? 
Well, sure, there were so many. I mean, good Lord, it's it's almost impossible to list them all. But but right off the bat, you've always got a backup. For example, we had kids, and so there was always somebody to be with the kids or take the kids somewhere or or, or show up somewhere. Sometimes, of course, they would get in trouble, and, and we'd have three parents would be showing up or more. That was kind of fun. And they had a, a show or something they were doing or a game. You know, we'd all show up for it and share them on. That was kind of cool. So the kids raising was great. You know, they, they, they grew up to be wonderful, wonderful people through all this. Uh, that was one. Uh, they, I think the main one that most people would relate to is that this allowed us to expand the different aspects of our interests and personalities. Because if you just got one person, then whatever you want to do has to be something the other person is into. You know, whether it's going out to dinner, you got to go to dinner that they like. If you're going to a movie, you got to go to a movie the other person likes. But if you've got multiple partners, you've got lots of choices and options. And that, that was really handy. Like uh, Morning Glory and Diane, for example, were really into horses. So they would go to the horse races. I wasn't much interested in horse races, so I didn't bother. But Wolf and I liked to go out to um, action movies, you know. And, and the ladies weren't much interested in action movies, so we'd go off and have a great time with the guys. You know, and, and I don't know, it just, everything just seemed to go smoothly. We had family businesses that were very successful. We published a magazine. We, we created a sculpture business and, um, and, and having multiple people, you've got a team, you know, all the time you've got a team and having that was just wonderful. We, people would ask about things like, well, how do you deal with jealousy, for example, but we never experienced it. So we really had no idea as, as near as we could figure out from the sidelines, jealousy appears to be based on insecurity on the feeling that somehow you're not going to get your share of whatever. And we simply never felt that. Morning Gloria and I knew that we were bonded soulmates for life from the very minute we met. So we weren't ever worried about, you know, any, either of them leaving us, you know? So, I mean, she did, she did, she died, but that's, that's what it took to, to break us as one of us had to die. And we're still connected. You know, that connection isn't gone. Um, in our network of lovers were supportive and got us through hard times. You know, if we had to to do any major thing like move, for example, we would have lovers helping us and showing up and being wonderful. When she was dying, the whole house was full of people who were there for me and for her and, and filling the house with, you know, music and wonderfulness, big tables full of food, people round the clock were looking you know, after her and checking medical stuff, we had doctors in our family, in our network. We had just everything. It was it was amazing to be at the heart of a network and a community. Deborah Annapol, who was a major pioneer in the whole field, uh, coined the term internet, an intimate network. And I think that was a very descriptive mm. one as well. Well, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, I'm sure, you know, your significant other Morning Glory was an amazing woman, obviously. I mean, you all was. spent year, years together, obviously, were amazing years, apparently, huh? Yeah, we had 40 years, and wow. it was absolutely wonderful. And That's in, the late, in the later years, the last 20 of that, where we were in group marriages, and we did lots of interviews and media stuff, and we got called the first family of polyamory for our absolutely wonderful poly family, the Ravenheart clan. We had a big house. Yeah, I remember you saying that. Yeah, it was great. You know, um, in today's society, you know, the cultural (laughs) 
society today. You know, there's so many labels and everything else. You know, John and I, we've always had this discussion on, you know, the differences between polyamory and swinging and multiple partners. You know, what's your view on that? What makes, you know, polyamory so much different and so much more special than those two references? That's that's interesting. Of course, the term simply means having multiple lovers with everybody's consent and agreement. It doesn't really specify what that looks like. So technically, swingers could be considered polyamorous, I suppose. But the amor part of it, the love part, is crucial. And in in swinging, it's it's kind of against the rules to fall in love with somebody. You can have sex with people, but you're not supposed to fall in love with them. So trying to separate that out to define the limits of relationships that you can have with other people has always struck us as a bad idea. And um, and, and, and there doesn't seem to be as much overlap as, as you would think, except I'm sure there must be many swingers who do, in fact, fall in love with other partners and probably do have a poly nature. We, we kind of thought of, of people's relationships the way birds are. You know, some birds are monogamous, like raptors and geese, and other ones are serial monogamous, like songbirds. Every year they, they, they go through a big courting thing, and they, they mate, and they build a nest and they have babies and they raise the babies and after the babies are grown up they all fly away and come back next year and, and do it all over with somebody else so they're kind of serial monogamous and then there's ones that are just completely um promiscuous like um, chickens for example you know so all of these models are available if we look around you know whatever you want to do and, and and i think that trying to put labels on stuff is really you know kind of counterproductive for one thing people resent being labeled by others but on the other hand, if we're going to talk about something, we have to have words to use or we can't talk about it. So there's always a tension between that. You know, we, we have to place labels so we can talk about something, but we don't want labels placed on us. So it's, it's a bit awkward. <laughs> That's a big contradiction, isn't it? <laughs> it? It is. And we just didn't deal with any of that stuff. For us, it was just all easy. We just had our relationships. We figured that you can just love who you want to love. Who else cares? I, so- I, I do not fathom this this intense obsession that people have with other people's sex lives and other people's love lives. What's it to them? You know, if it's a same sex couple or a multi-person family or what, so what? It's not you, it's them. Let them have their life. I think they're just jealous when they, when they're commenting on your lifestyle, right? (laughs) Maybe, maybe it's something that they wish they could do, but it's not that hard. All you really got to do is just be open to the possibilities, you know? It's not rocket science. <laughs> so just a personal question. I mean, you're talking about this as, I mean, such a huge lifestyle difference from, you know, the norm of society, so to speak. How many partners would you actually have at once in your poly household? Actually, members of the of the family, um, our largest number that we had uh, was the Ravenheart clan, and we had five dedicated, committed Ravenhearts in the family. And we all lived together and, and worked together and stuff. So there's that. But we all had other lovers and networks of lovers. And our lovers had other lovers. And, and uh, <laughs> if you try to encompass the entire network, we actually tried to do that at one time. We tried to draw a diagram. We, we kind of used a molecular diagram model with mm-hmm. atoms representing people and how many lines connected with each person and the lines. And it looked like an explosion in a spaghetti factory. It was just—it <laughs> was impossible. It's just impossible. So, <clears throat> we're talking about polyamory, and 
like you said, a lot. Some people are polyamorous. Some people are monogamous. For some people, monogamy works really well. But what I've found is that a lot of times people will try to force monogamy because that's the cultural norm and that's what they're supposed to do and that's the way they were raised and they don't want to upset anybody. But then they go and cheat or they go and one partner finds another lover or both partners go out and find another lover and don't tell each other. So they're not really being monogamous. They just are pretending to be monogamous. And that's where the problems come in a lot of relationship is trying to force monogamy when our nature for so many of us is not monogamy. Yep, that's a real problem, all right. We used to watch, we used to comment, we watch movies and TV shows in which the jealousy issues and monogamy issues were just a constant theme. It was just came up all the time in cheating and stuff and the crime shows in which people killed each other, you know, over these issues. It was just crazy. And we would always just look at that and shake our head. You know, it could be so much easier if everybody just got along and, and stop the cheating. Look, if you want to have other lovers, be honest about it. You know, don't cheat. You're, you're, you're poly. The thing didn't seem to be so much about what people want to do themselves as they wanted to control their partners and not allow them to be free, which seemed nuts to us because we've always been, you know, sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander. You know, how can you, you know, what it would be hypocrisy to, to say, well, I want to have other lovers, but you can't. It's like, what? <laughs> you know, come on. It just, so the, the lying, the cheating, the sneaking around, all that sleazy stuff, it's just not a part of the polyamory paradigm. It just doesn't happen at all. And we, we look at it with mystification, like the whole great classic story of Camelot, for example. It's like, what the hell? You know, Lancelot and Arthur were best friends, and they, and they both loved Guinevere, and she loved both of them. They should have all just gotten together and had a triad. No problem. I mean, this is not a problem unless you make it one. And there's nothing to be a problem here. We, we, all, we never did understand that. So aside from that, you said earlier you did an interview with Playboy. What was that about? Oh, it was really, um, the well, the interviewer was Robert Anton Wilson, who became a very famous uh, author after that and, and regular columnist for Green Egg and wrote the Illuminatus trilogy and was a good friend of oh, wow. Tim Leary and introduced us. So it was a great opening. But the actual article that he wrote, the interview, was really about the event itself more so. You know, he wanted to know who I was and what I was doing there. And I talked about my work and stuff. And then he interviewed other people. And he wrote an article basically about the convention. And, and it was a nice one with with interviews with various people. It was kind of fun That's to be awesome. interviewed by Playboy and got a free lunch out of the deal. So you know, <laughs> there it was. That's great. That is great. Yeah. So a lot of this stuff that we've been talking about tonight, me and I talk about all the time. All the time. We talk about with our friends and we you know, one of the biggest things that you really hit upon was the jealousy aspect of the cheating. Cheating isn't so much, to me, isn't so much about sleeping with someone else. Cheating is the betrayal or the lie or the deception that goes along with sleeping with someone else. So if you can just admit to yourself that, hey, sometimes I'm attracted to someone else. I see someone and I'm attracted to them. But to admit that, but also allow the space for your partner to admit it as well. Because we all are. It doesn't matter if you're monogamous. Poly, it doesn't. The label doesn't matter. Everyone is attracted to other people at some point. I think so. I think so. I think that monogamy may be for humans maybe an artificial thing. There are no monogamous mammals. There are a few semi-monogamous birds. That is that they 
they pair bond and they appear to be totally devoted to each other. But they've done research where they've gone and, and done genetic studies on the offspring. And they found that the offspring are almost always from a different partner than the one that they're bonded to. You know, and the only monogamous uh, primate is a little monkey in South America called titty monkeys, T-I-T-I. And, and they are totally <laughs> bonded to each other. <laughs> right. And they're completely bonded to each other. Every, they sleep together, all cuddle up in the morning. They get up and scream at the neighbors and spend all day grooming each other. But it turns out that they don't actually have sex with each other. They have sex with the neighbors and the babies are all from, from neighbors. And that's the closest we get to monogamy. So Morning Glory and I were utterly and totally pair bonded. There's no question about that. By the literal meaning of monogamy, being married to one person, we we definitely held that. Of course, we eventually being married to other people as well. So the polygamy literally uh, did describe us. But we never, never felt that had to require sexual exclusivity. It just wasn't a thing. Often, because both of us travel a lot, Often we would be far away at some convention or festival or event, and we'd meet somebody really cool, and and we'd 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 get together, we'd have a wonderful time, and we'd say, "Wow, you're really neat," um, you know, and I want to bring you home to meet the to, to meet the family. <laughs> we would, and we would bring them home, and they did, and they did. So they got to be um, lovers that we would meet on the road or somewhere else. We would very often bring home. And they would be, they would meet Morning Glory or me, whoever, you know, whichever other partner it was, it was. And we'd get along because, hey, if you like this person, they're probably pretty cool. I'm bound to like them too. We also had a thing we called um, bringing it all back home. Because when you meet somebody new, you get all inspired with this new relationship energy dynamic. You got all really turned on. Well, we'd take that back. So, you know, we always had passion for each other that was, in a sense, fueled and inspired by the dynamics of new relationships that we were always encountering. So we expanded our network of friends and lovers and we, and we kept our relationship juicy. And, and, you know, as far as I can see, there was absolutely no issues. Wolf made a comment about polyamory once. He said that, well, you know, if you're totally poly, theoretically, you know, love is infinite and you can love anybody or everybody, but time is not infinite. <laughs> so you had to divvy your time. And there were times when we had to put up sleeping schedules on the refrigerator so that we could make sure that everybody had equal time and we were scheduling our time together for date nights and stuff like that. But that was just kind of amusing. It wasn't like an issue of contention. We would say, oh, great, tomorrow I've got a date night with so-and-so. And, you know, or, and, and sometimes in a rotation, because with the Ravenhearts, there were five of us, there would be one night that you wouldn't have a date. And say that's great. Here's a night I can read or watch TV or something, and that was cool too. It, it just all, it just seemed really easy, and we never really quite understood why people have to make it so difficult. You know, from our point of view, sex is just one of the greatest gifts that uh, we could have ever been given by the goddess. You know, and why would you want to fuck it up? You know? I mean, beautiful thing. Very true. Thing. So you have a degree in anthropology. I have a degree in psychology, anthropology, and sociology uh, with minor in pre-med education, things like that. When I went to college, I was just so excited. Here was all the opportunity to take all the stuff, and I just took everything I could. I just filled up my schedule with maximum number of hours. When I graduated, my uh, uh, the, the dean of the college told my family that I had taken more classes during my time there than any other student that they had known. So 
There you go. Wow. But I was just fascinated. I wanted to know all this stuff. And here was my chance. I only had four years, you know. Well, it went on to graduate school, but still. Well, you also had a you had a four year contract with Barnum and Bailey as well. We did for for uh, exhibiting our unicorns. That's that's probably the most famous thing that we did in our life for the general public. Is that tell us about that? Well, it it started off. We were um, uh, just had a shared interest in so many things, just all kinds of stuff. We. We'd read all the same books, listened to all the music, same music, watched all the same movies. We just had identical tastes and stuff. When we met, we were both reading the very same novel, for example, at the time oh, wow. we met, which is another roadside attraction by Tom Robbins. But um, one of those interests was in mythical creatures, mythical beasties and stuff. And, and, and as we conversed about that, I remember there was a time specifically we're sitting in the living room with a bunch of folks and somebody said, what's the difference between a basilisk and a cockatrice? And well, we didn't really know, but I had a big set of Encyclopedia Britannica. So we went and looked it up and it turned out that both of these mythical creatures, which are these reptilian creatures whose power is to turn you to stone like Medusa, you know, <laughs> um, both of them derive from a real live animal, which is the Egyptian spitting cobra. And it sprays its venom into the eyes of its victims. But the venom is invisible as it's sprayed. So you see this critter, it turns up, it rears up and looks at you and opens its mouth and suddenly you're blinded. And this morphed over time into a whole mythology of this, this hooded um, reptilian creature that could turn you to stone. And we said, you know, there's got to be stories like that about all these mythical creatures. Somewhere there's the origin of the myth. Somewhere it began. Somewhere there's that grain of sand at the heart of the pearl. Wouldn't it be cool to write a book about that? And just about that time, Peter Beagle's book had come out, The Last Unicorn. And one of the characters is kind of a gypsy witch is traveling around with a, with a menagerie of mystical creatures. And she calls it Creatures of Night Brought to Light. And we thought that'd be a great name for a book. So, um, hold on. <laughs> All right. Here we go. So we started doing research and we were traveling around the country. And this is the days before the Internet or Google or any of that kind of stuff. So we really couldn't, um, you know, uh, re rely on, on just looking it up. We had to go by um, uh, libraries and we, we travel all over the place. And we visited lots of libraries and um, and we taught for a while at the university level in Eugene, Oregon. And there in the research, I discovered the secret of the unicorn. We we'd thought, like most people, the unicorn was just simply based on a rhinoceros. You know, Why not? Although it didn't look much like the way unicorns were depicted, I'll have to admit. you know, They were always depicted as these graceful creatures with cloven hooves and bearded chins and tufted tails and white flowing manes. It didn't look much like a rhinoceros. A lot of people thought they were based on horses, but horses don't have cloven hooves, let alone horns. And that clearly wasn't it. There's actually only one hoofed animal that has a bearded chin, and those are goats. So we, so we looked at all the stuff and collected all the material and did all the research, and we came upon some studies that had been done in the 1930s by an experimental a doctor who was doing some experimental things to discover how horns develop. His name was Franklin Dove, and he discovered that horns do not just grow out of the skull. Their growth is stimulated by enzymes that are produced by little glands that are in the skin of the forehead when a baby animal is born. 
and the skin is, is, is just loose, just like ours. You know, it's all moves around. But in the middle of it, there are these two glands. And it, it, within a few days after birth, these glands inject enzymes. And the enzymes go down into the skull and they, they instigate the process of horn development for two horns. So Dove said, well, what would happen if we kind of move these, these together in the middle of the forehead? Wow. And, one, and all the enzymes went down into one spot. And he did that with a with a, a bull calf a, d- a day old ayrshire bull calf and it became a unicorn a single horn grew out of its head and it came upon that and in our research we came upon images from the bronze age four thousand years ago of taurine unicorns bull unicorns usually depicted as fighting lions and as we did more research we realized that this was a secret process that had been closely guarded and lost and rediscovered many times to produce a herd leader who would be able to defend the herd against predators, lions, wolves, whatever it was. But you could only have one because they would fight and kill all the other males because they've got this absolutely invincible weapon. And they're they're actually deadly. They really are. They've they've got a sword sticking out of the middle of their head and they know how to use it. So we said, wow, that's an amazing story. That's really incredible. That'll make a great chapter in the book or... I wonder if we could do that. So about that time, a friend of ours was buying some land um, up in the mountains of, of California. And we told her about it. And she said, well, I'm getting this land, but I could really use some caretakers. Why don't you guys move up there and be my caretakers and, well, raise unicorns if you can. <laughs> so we did. And we spent a few years um, finding the right breeding stock because we had to get exactly the right animals. We wanted to reproduce the unicorns that are seen in those famous tapestries. What we did had to look just like that, you know? And um, and we succeeded after several years of getting it all together. Our first actual unicorns were born in the spring of 1980. And that became huge. You know, uh, we had a big coming out party. We were in every newspaper and TV interviews and we, um, uh, it just got incredibly famous. And we, we took them to the Renaissance Festival and in the following years, we went to every Renaissance festival in North America and traveled all over the place. There were months that we didn't even see each other. There was one summer that we had four animals on the road at different festivals. And I had one and Morning Glory had one and my son had one and her daughter had one. And we didn't even see each other for four months. It was amazing. It was just huge. And in our um, agent for the Renaissance Fair brokered us a four-year lease agreement with the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. And they took over um, in 1985. And and they they said eventually, um, I've, I've seen recordings of interviews in which they said that this was the most um, famous and, and most successful animal act they'd ever had in the entire hundred year history of the circus. You know, it, it, it outperformed Jumbo the elephant or Gargantua the gorilla or whatever else they had. <laughs> and all this went on for years and years, you know. And um, eventually after it all completed and all the animals had grown old and died and, and we moved off the land and didn't have any way to raise more, um, we finally got around. How about that book? We've got all this material. So we finally <laughs> did actually write the book. And here it is, A Wizard's Bestiary. And it's... Uh, this, this first edition is currently out of print, but a new special second edition is um, is going to be out within a couple of weeks. And wow. it will be a second edition. And it's got a whole chapter about the unicorn. And our whole story is in there. 
but also whole chapters about many other things and other adventures we had, like diving for mermaids in New Guinea and things like that. Because wow. um, we had to do something after that, you know. What does one do after raising unicorns? You know, you're looking for <laughs> amazing. We had quite a, quite a life and amazing adventures and, and wrote books about them. Their book of our life is called The Wizard and the Witch. And it's our whole life story. And um, it was it was a huge undertaking because we had our the person who put it together interviewed not just us, but all of our family and friends, parents, kids, everybody. And um, and and we came out to be far too big for our publisher. So they said, look, you got to cut this way, way down to like half the size. So we did. And um, just just uh, last year, another publisher decided that they wanted to pick it up. Our first publisher was done with it. And the second publisher came and said, look, we'd like to pick this up, but we'd like to do two volumes and do all of it. All the stuff that got cut out, we want to put oh, back wow. in because people want to know. What, did, what am I missing? So we put out a second two-volume edition of The Wizard and the Witch. And it's all there. The polyamory, our lovers, unicorns, mermaids, kids, family, raven hearts. It's all in the book. Our whole life story. Well, right we can't wait to read that. Story. Yeah, that's amazing. That is amazing. Thank We're you. We're hoping to actually have some mermaids on our podcast. Oh, <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool, too. Well, mm -hmm. so there you go. Right. Thank you so much Thank for you. coming on tonight. It has been a, a complete honor, honestly. It's been for, an amazing story. Yes, it really has. We appreciate it so much, Mr. Zell. Well, you're very welcome, and I enjoyed it. And and you guys have a wonderful time from here on out, and, and, and it's been a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you again so much. John? Well, until next time, make all of your multiple lover fantasies become realities. <laughs> I'll drink to that. <laughs> <laughs>